When you read the title of today's episode, I want you to think about what immediately came to mind a second or two after. Did you imagine like a big ball of fire? We're going to blow ourselves up. Did you imagine that law and order in our country will be totally thrown to the wayside and that only the strong will survive? Did you think about the fact that no one really has any idea what that means? Or was it just something that you read real quick and you're like, huh, what what this is about? I think when you really sum up how that statement, how this title of this episode can be interpreted, the world as we know it is ending, you could look at it any kind of way. In most ways, we think of it are binary or dichotomous, which is maybe you're someone who hears that statement and it's the worst thing you could possibly think of. Or maybe you're someone who thinks we need a change. Maybe you're someone who believes that the world as we know it is awful and rotten, no matter what political partisan side you may be on. You couldn't be happier if the world as we know it is ending. Or, what I would like to believe, is that there is someone out there who hears that statement and they understand that the world as we've known it has ended every 75 to 100 years. I'm reading a book right now called The Changing World Order by a prolific investor named Ray Dalio. This guy heads up Bridgewater Capital. The dude is a whiz when it comes to economics and currency and arbitrage theory. He, he's a stud. He's so good with money that this is the guy that P. Diddy says, yo, I need you to teach me about economics and finance. Well, Diddy's a billionaire. Ray Dalio is a billionaire's billionaire. This is the second of his books I've read, the other one being Principles. And the basis of this book looks at the world in terms of how empires rise and fall. Typically, there are three stages, the rise, the top, and then the decline. And what the book looks at on the one end is cycles of debt and currency and credit. But on the other angle, it looks at what are the other features that also exhibit when a country is on the rise, when it is at its top, and when it is at its decline. Oftentimes, the idea of economics and finance are interwoven with politics and culture. He actually puts it a really interesting way, is that the people who work in finance, these people represent money. The people who work in politics, these people work in the sector of power. And it's funny how there's so much big money in big politics. It's not really funny when you think about it. It's actually abhorrent and sad. Now, I'm not going to give you a whole breakdown of his book. I'm not going to give you a synopsis of anything. But it is a concept that I've been hearing my whole life. The end of the world as we know it. The world's going to end in 2012 was the last really big one. And the fact of the matter is, is that no one really knows what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day. I mean, we've been so conditioned to the idea of the sun rising and setting every day that if one day at 6 a.m. Central Standard Time here in the United States, the sun didn't rise. Well, it's always done that. What about the day it doesn't? What about the day you wake up and you realize the stock market has crashed or your currency is worthless or that your government has gone rogue? Here in the United States, we've lived in a vacuum for a very long time. My entire life, probably three times the length of my life, to where we have been a dominant superpower. And we really became a dominant superpower after World War II. Something that 
Dalio talks about in his book a lot is that much like how Walter White talks about in the first episode of Breaking Bad, it's transformation. It's amazing growth and then it's decay and then it's rising from the ashes to something totally new. Engines of war, economic downturn, crises, black swan events, these things all actually have a place in how the world works. The purpose of today's episode isn't to scare anybody. If anything, I hope it gets us all on the same page. But I am going to look at the problems I think face our country and our world and why that even if the American standard of living, the American culture that we know is coming to an end, that throughout our whole lives it's been shifting towards this, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's because of nefarious plot or because of the new world order. No, it's the changing world order. I want to look at not only how the world is changing, but for those of us who say, I'm not okay with that, what does it mean for you? When I think about how the world has changed largely since I have been alive, the advancements we've made in technology and culture, in the ability for us to communicate with people, and also douse our communication, which means to to halt it, to to bottleneck it, to make sure that it's very individualized and very catered to a certain set of ideas, is nothing short of remarkable. When I was a kid and you were on the computer, your mom had to tell you to get off because of dial-up. The first social media platform I ever used was MySpace. When I was a child, I think I remember gas being under a dollar. I remember that when we were asked to stand for the national anthem, that everybody seemed happy to do it. We didn't talk about race so much. The idea of the LGBTQ flag had never become a thing, and I'm not, I'm not bad-mouthing it, but I'm just saying that is how the world has changed. Now I walk down my street, and I know that there is a gay couple that have one outside of their house. I don't think anything of it, but it's how the world has changed. And when we look at what influences change in this country, we would like to believe, at least I would like to believe, that it's because as we have grown and as technology has aided us, and in some cases hindered us, we have become so keyed in to how the world works, we no longer are surprised by anything. We let our assumptions about people and culture tell us a narrative that may or may not be true. But just because you may come to that conclusion on what feels like your own doesn't mean that you're not being influenced. Think about how much time you spend on social media compared to maybe 10 years ago. Think about the language our governments have used largely since 2012. Think about all the horrible things that we are exposed to because of our phones, because of computers, because of news and marketing working in lockstep to make you believe that if you don't take this pill, and the symptoms may be, that your life will be worse off for it. Think about all the sexy marketing that pushes you to want to drink and party, to feel like garbage, only to feel days later that you're good to go again and the cycle repeats. When I was younger... Kids were healthier. Adults seemed to be more involved in their kids' lives. We weren't so distracted. It wasn't so hard to talk to one another. When you get into the current decade we're in, we were shoved in our homes for some people three years. We were forced to stand six feet apart from each other. And at certain points in our history, the topic of discussion was that you may have to show papers to enter public places. I had a lot of conversations with my parents during the time of COVID, 
because since we come from such different generations, I wondered what it was like the last time we did this, and I was surprised to find out there was no last time we did this. My parents never lived through a pandemic like this. Sure, there was swine flu and H1N1, but throughout their whole life, they have never been told, we're shutting down the country. We're locking you in your home. This is for your own good. And this isn't a shot at my parents because in our generational differences, in the differences we have in age especially, some of these things made them feel rather safe. My pops, mind you, is in his mid-80s. He looks great, by the way. He takes really good care of himself. My mom is in her 60s, or as she reminds me every year, every woman's birthday after year 29 is still 29. But when I mentioned to them, I'm like, well, don't you think that this is kind of like what your generations fought against? My dad was born right after World War II, my pops that is. My mom lived through the entire Cold War. These ideological battles of the idea that freedom, democracy, diplomacy, the idea of individual autonomy being a key factor for how communities come together, a lot of those things seem like they had been torn apart. And when I think about the generations that championed these ideas, I looked at my dad. You were a Marine in the 50s. Now, of course, to be a Marine, you have to give up your semblance of autonomy and personal choice because you become part of a unit, an authoritative unit, a militant unit. Some may even say authoritarian, especially in your boot camp days. And while my mom and I never had to do any of those things out of choice, when I mentioned that it looked like the landscape of our life had changed from this place where we effectively took for granted our rights and our freedoms and these things that we have spoiled ourselves with acting like they will always be here, before our eyes they had become limited in what felt like overnight and we were told it was for our own good. They said I was overreacting. In our lifetime, our rights will never be condemned. And it's funny because in our lifetime, at least in theirs, when they were about my age, their 20s and 30s, my mom had me when she was 32, things were a lot cheaper back then. A big part of the book that I actually want to reference is that people always look at the cost of goods and services. That's how they gauge the economy. But very little do we actually look at the value of our money. You want to talk about a changing world order, think about when we got off the gold standard. The Federal Reserve and Federal Income Tax were both erected in 1913. And the phenomena we know as inflation is something that has been around longer than we give it credit for. But what we aimed for is a 2% increase in inflation every year. When you think about how our country produces products, services, adds value to the world, well, I find it almost uncanny that when you look at the Federal Reserve and Federal Income Tax being started in 1913, in 2013, a complete century later, here in the United States, our GDP was outpaced by our debt. In the vacuum that we live in, not just for my 30 years, but for your 35, 40, 50, and if you're someone who's older than that, I'm glad I have someone who will actually listen to me from those generations. Inflation in this country got up to 10% in the last few years. And at the same time, 
Not only was there a supply chain crisis, we were recovering from the artificial coma that our government put us into because of COVID. We also were experiencing a huge culture shift here in the United States. And I'm not going to sit here and blame it all on Joe Biden, because that's not true. Going back especially to the summer of 2020, which Tim Poole calls the summer of love, we saw race relations portrayed in this country come to an all-time head. There was over $2 billion of damage done to big blue cities like, like Minneapolis, Minnesota, Chicago, St. Louis, which had had its day back in 2014 after Mike Brown was shot. We were defunding police departments and we were letting criminals go. Now, more than ever, kids were coming out and saying they were confused if they were actually little boys or little girls. And their teachers, not all teachers, but enough of them, they were saying that these were their kids. And it seemed that the idea of American exceptionalism, the idea that we as a people saw this as the greatest country in the world, that in less than 300 years, the contributions we made to technology, art, science, politics, culture, that they were all for naught. This isn't by mistake, it's by design. At least, I believe it is. And when you look at how these things intertwine, money, politics, power, what is it that we look at? Is it that politicians are lining us up off the cliff? Is it that this has always been their idea that we are scum and that they're doing us a favor? I think if you look at things in a very hyperbolic phase, then yes, that's what is happening. But at the end of the day, The people pulling the strings, they don't want you to know who they are. And when I mention this next person, it's funny because I don't believe this guy is really pulling the strings either. You may or may not have heard of BlackRock Capital and the head of this investment firm that has over $10 trillion in assets. You look at the S&P 500, you look at the NASDAQ, they own a big piece of all of those companies which are a lot of products, a lot of services, and a lot of influence on how we see American life. The head of BlackRock, Larry Fink, had this to say. I'm going to read you this from Fox Business. And it says, BlackRock CEO slammed for forced behaviors comment after interview reemerges about DEI initiatives. This article is from June of this year. While sitting alongside former Amex CEO Kenneth I. Chenault, I don't know if I said that right, in a resurfaced 2017 New York Times interview, Fink revealed that BlackRock would force behaviors on gender or race and threaten impacts on compensation if diversity, equity, and inclusion standards weren't met. The quote goes, Behaviors are going to have to change, and this is one thing we're asking companies. You have to force behaviors, and at BlackRock, we are forcing behaviors. Fink, whose firm owns shares in everyday companies such as Amazon, Apple, MasterCard, Johnson & Johnson, Walmart, Walt Disney, touted four more points of diverse employment that year. Now, you could hear that quote, and you could hear the term diversity, equity, and inclusion, and you could say, well, Murph, that's not a bad thing. Diversity is a good thing. Inclusion is a good thing. I thought equity is a good thing. I think on their faces... Most of those things are a good thing. I think diversity of thought 
is necessary because it lends a hand to objectivity. Your perspective is not the only perspective. The American perspective is not the only perspective. Me, as a heterosexual white man who's still in his early years, his 30s, my experience is not that diverse until I gain someone else's perspective. No, that's a good thing. I think being inclusive is a good thing. I think accepting people for who they are, not trying to change them, welcoming them into your community, as long as they uphold the core values and the standards that your community finds amicable, I think that's a really good thing. I also understand that exclusion can be a good thing. As inclusive as I am to people who differ with me on topics that have to do with culture and politics and this idea of the present moment, the Overton window that we have right now, I also was quick to exclude people from the conversation, which is, in my case, if you are someone who tries to hand these ideas down through an authoritarian means, saying that I have to accept them, or you're trying to destroy the things that I love about this country, I'm sorry, no, that's not an objective that I'm going to be inclusive of. doesn't mean I think it should be exterminated, it means that I am not inclusive of it. But the idea of equity is where I really start to have a problem, which is equity is a good thing when you think about it in terms of I'm building equity. I own assets. There are things that I have invested into that then produce for me value. But equity in this term is not you doing the work to fund yourself with things and assets and pieces of value that will return to you value. No, instead, the idea here is equity is equality of outcome, not equality of opportunity. Well, what does that mean, Murph? It means that when you hear about the idea of participation trophies, for example, imagine that on a grand scale. Imagine you work your butt off to become a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer, and then you have someone who goes the opposite way in life. They don't invest in themselves. They don't have a goal. They indulge in as many gluttonous different feasts that they can in their purview of daily life. This person lacks discipline, lacks consistency, and they've largely not contributed anything to society. And in fact, they're probably a dread on society. You would like to believe, at least we would like to believe in our meritocracy here, that the person who invests in himself most or herself most should have the greatest opportunity Equity states that, well, that's nice that you did all that, but these people need it more than you. Diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace has allowed meritocracy to take a back seat. I wouldn't even say allowed is the proper term. I would say it's forced it. And when you look at how the people who are deciding policy in these big companies, which are interwoven not only into national culture, but also into global culture, what happens? From the top down, what I've noticed that is most apparent in the changing world order in my life is that the idea of the best person from the job has been set aside by the idea that in the name of the common good, we all must have equal outcome, which is a complete betrayal to how our country became as great as it was in the first place. I'm told that I am inherently racist because of my skin color. And that on the intersectional hierarchy, because I sit atop of it as a straight white man, even though I'm a convicted felon, that my debt to society is to give more to people who are 
of different gender, different ethnicity, different nationality, not because I feel it in my heart, but because I'm expected to from my government. Because when I go into these companies to spend money, I am lectured on how awful I am and what a dredge on these people my mere existence is. When you look at social media, especially with social media, look at the stories that are highlighted. Look at what gets preferential treatment and look at the biases and how our news and how our current events are disseminated to us. Look at an article from Vox, V-O-X.com. And look at a car- an article from the Daily Wire. Now, I have my biases and I support the Daily Wire. However, I understand that they're biased news. I understand that there's an agenda for all people that disseminate information. And even getting as far into looking at Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock. Looking at Joe Biden, who is the president of our country. Looking at George Soros, who literally has made a living shorting on country's failure. Meaning, this guy goes in with all of his money, all of his resources, and he influences politics and economics in countries, and he bets on them to fail. This is the guy who pays district attorneys lots and lots and lots of money to be soft on crime here in the United States. And what we're shown by mainstream news when we're lectured by people who were like Don Lemon, who are like Joy Reid, Al Sharpton, Brian Stelter, Rachel Maddow, Sean Hannity. We walk away feeling dirty. We walk away feeling undeserving of the better things in life. And we're told we are selfish and inherently discriminatory due to these surface level conversations. The truth is, is that this series of events coincides with the idea that our time on top is coming to an end. And in our lifetime, that is a horrifying reality for most of us who work hard for what we have, who build companies and businesses and who start movements and who get involved in their community and who feel a greater sense of pride and purpose in the world that they leave behind for their children. The four fastest growing superpowers in the last 500 years have been the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, the United States, in China. And basically, since the turn of the millennium, we've been on a downward trajectory. Our kids are more out of shape than ever. Their test scores are lower and lower. We fight back and forth between teaching them practical academic lessons and these moral social science hypotheses and theories that only lead them questioning their inherent moral value. We promote cultures of violence and division And we tell our public servants that the acts of a few bad apples should determine how we treat them all. We've gotten to a place where we've defunded police departments and demoralized our police so much that when the call comes for them to do their job, we create more bad apples. When these cops are given the moral dilemma of, hey, there's a mob of people in downtown Chicago, in New York City, in Portland, in Seattle, and they're wreaking havoc in a community, or... We just got a call about someone with a megaphone protesting outside of some pride event with a Christian ideology behind it. These cops, in fear for their lives, in fear of what waits for them if they go to face that mob of people, they decide, hey, that's not my responsibility anymore. I don't get paid enough for this. I'm not making excuses for bad cops. Bad cops exist. And those bad cops, they take the efforts of good cops, good public servants, 
and they smudge them into nothingness. I don't like the idea that if you're in California or New York or Philadelphia, if someone comes up and assaults you or steals from you or beats you or rapes you on a subway with a bunch of people watching, that if you defend yourself or if you fight back, that you are the person at fault. As a country, we have let division and we have let identity politics drive such a wedge in between us creating all this black and white narrative. And I don't just mean race, but I do mean in the idea of moralistic dichotomies, we've made it impossible to find a gray area. Anytime that you try to have unity or we try to find where that safe little space is in the middle where we can all coexist, there's a new tragedy. There's a new crisis. There's a new thing to support or be anti-position of. Now, I'm not worth that much money. I'm not that educated. I am not someone who has all the answers. But I look at the problem, and what is the problem? The problem largely is, is that the people who are writing the history books, the people who have a lot of power and a lot of money, and they want to take what we have here especially, and they want to transition it into the next world order, They want to make sure that the people who believe that the direction the country is heading is wrong are silenced, that they are deemed the bad guys when we tell those stories in history. So what do we do about it? Well, if you ask me, the first thing you have to do is you have to decide, number one, what are my values? What do I really care about? What are my goals? And is the path I'm choosing right now with the environment currently constructed around me? Am I doing everything possible to not just give myself the best chance to succeed, but am I giving my potential children the best chance to succeed? I gave a public speech about a week ago when I was in Nebraska. And the fact is, as I'm largely going to break out these same three points right now, but I let the people know, and this was about health and wellness. I said, you have to figure out what's important to you, what you really want And you have to do your research and you have to make a plan. I'm effectively telling you the same thing here. You have to look around at what the world is, what the world needs, how you can offer problem, how you can offer solutions and fixes and be the most valuable version of yourself. Tie that to things that you want to make happen and you have to have the plan put in motion. The unfortunate truth is that most people will not do that. Because in order to do that, you're going to have to probably raise your standard into one that is not comfortable. George Carlin, in his last special before he died, and this man is my hero. I look at this guy and all the things he said, and even the things I disagreed with now, I definitely understand how they make sense. He said, everybody's too fat and happy in this country. No one's taught to question things anymore. Everybody's got a fancy phone that'll rub their balls and make them pancakes. And what happens? We have completely coddled people who have no ambition, who have no ability to think critically, and we have let them become the majority and the 20% of us who actually want to make something of ourselves and the 2% that really do it the right way, we're the bad guys. Okay, you have to look at it real quick. The odds are not in your favor. They're not in my favor either. I run my own business. I'm aligned with a lot of really, really great companies and a lot of really great people who run those companies. But I'm behind the eight ball too because of a lot of things I did in my past where I was content with my standard and I walked around in my aimless individualism 
my chronic individualistic state. I said, there's nothing out there for me. There's nothing out there I want. Years later, I have changed my tone because I figured out that there were things that I wanted and there were values that I wanted to tie myself to. That value is I want average people to look at me and say, there is no reason that if he did all these amazing things, which I haven't done all of them yet, but I'm on my way, there is no reason I can't. Tying myself to that idea has got me my own house, has got me my own business, has helped me touch almost six figures a year, has kept me out of the criminal justice system after I was deeply intertwined in it, and has helped me realize that it is not about me. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you have to be disciplined and consistent on the day-to-day tasks that move you closer to your goals. When we look at the landscape of education and business around us, we notice that you're penalized for doing better these days. Not long ago, there was a policy enacted that allowed mortgage companies to actually charge you more for having a high credit score so they could subsidize people who apply for mortgages who have low credit scores. They are getting rid of aptitude tests and GPA requirements in schools. There was outrage over the fact that we were no longer going to support the idea of affirmative action entrance requirements into universities. They want you to take the easiest path possible. They want you to be subservient. They want you to be fat. They want you to be lazy. They want you to be selfish and disconnected from everything. You are going to have to be disciplined and consistent about raising your standard and being the best version of you because if you don't make you the best version of you that you can do, it is way easier for you to capitulate to what they want. Go with the flow. Go with the current. Swim downstream. Go into the black hole, into the abyss, and into the matrix. It's okay to eat 10,000 calories a day of highly refined carbs, no protein, get no sunlight, get no water, no fresh air, don't read anything. Just stay plugged into your phone, sit in the recliner, let the diabetes and heart disease and chronic illness take you over. I'm sorry, but you're going to have to get uncomfortable. The thing I've learned is that character building is the thing that sparks all change. And oftentimes, it's just looking at what you don't want to do most that you know you should do, eat relatively healthy, move every day, drink water, feed your brain something good. Those are the things that allow you to do so much more than increase your longevity. Those are the things that allow you to become credible in the eyes of your community, which is so important because they don't want us to be communal. They want us to be tribal. They want you to go to your Thanksgiving dinner and they want you to hate your crazy Aunt Sally for her Republican beliefs or your crazy cousin Jimmy for his progressive beliefs. They don't want us to talk to each other. They want a civil war. They want us demoralized and broken in this country so they can offer us the solution, the easy way out, the free lunch. There is no such thing as a free lunch which dips into point number three. This is a little different from my talk I gave, so if you were there, I apologize that it's not the same thing, but just a moment of objectivity. Point number three is you have to be involved in your community. I went on a 10K run this morning with Mark, who has done so much for me in helping me grow and helping me understand just how many of my previous presumptions about the world were so wrong. And we did two laps One was just me and him, which was great. 
but I'm on a mission right now to run a 10K a day for 13 days, and I will have a podcast episode, why, before you know it. Eventually, more people joined in with us. I think we had about 10 people with us today. We're running around downtown St. Louis. The weather was nice. People stopped and stared at us, probably because, like, look at all these crazy people running on a Saturday morning. I'm still hungover from the night before. And then we all went back to Omen Coffee Co., his coffee shop, and we had coffee, and we talked for a little bit. As individuals, we can only effectuate so much change. But when you look at the power that our government has, when you look at the power big business has, people like Vanguard, people like Larry Fink and BlackRock, the numbers are on their side, not necessarily in people, but in resources. But what we found out is that when we unite as a community, we don't need those handouts. We don't need those resources. We don't need these people to pander to us about what the common good is when they don't even lead by example. I remember when I would coach people in sales and I had to tell them the truth that you're not going to be able to do everything from social media. They're like, well, I see this influencer do it. I see that influencer do it. And I had to remind them, yeah, but those people started with the five people closest to them. And some of my students, some of my clients would say, well, that's not going to work because people are sketchy. Are people sketchy or are you just not trusting of anyone? Is it because you don't do right by yourself and you don't hold your word to what you said you would do, the character building that it takes to build trust with yourself? Maybe you're sketchy. It's a possibility. The point I'm trying to make, everyone, is that if we walk around aimlessly without goals, without values, without something to focus on, without something that brings us life and builds character, if we don't stay on the path for a long time and effectuate long-term change, and if we don't do it together, we find our strengths and we find our middle grounds and we understand that the part does not represent the whole and the whole does not represent the part, but we can coexist peacefully and be the best superpower possible. If we don't come to this conclusion then the changing world order is going to be all the rights, all the freedoms, all the liberties that we took for granted. We're going to look back at those with a lot of remorse when we see that our world has become a stagnant visage of what it once was. It's going to take this idea that the world as we know it coming to an end doesn't have to be that. I look around at so many people who I've become so intertwined with in the last five years, and not just at first form, but people who, who make my life so much better because they challenge me and they push me. A great example of this is Mark, especially considering this guy has had it harder than me. And today we're running through St. Louis and it's, it's not flat terrain. I usually run on flat terrain. I'm running hills. We're going uphill. We're going downhill. I'm changing speeds. We're changing directions. I almost matched my PR because I had someone pushing me because I had someone helping me raise my standard, because that person knows what is important to me and I know what is important to them. And that energy fed off each other because he wants to make St. Louis a community again, because I want my community to be representative of what I loved so much when I was a kid. Those communities need to be able to synergize with each other. It can't just be, oh, well, my identity politics don't allow for it. You're a bad person. I'm a good person. No. What I said in the first episode returning to the podcast was I want people to be able to take a look in the mirror, to have hard conversations with themselves and then with other people, come to the table correct in good faith. And no matter how firm you are in your position, say, if the evidence is there, wow, I was wrong about that. 
I'm not going to delude myself into thinking that we all want that, though. There's a scene from The Matrix where the whole plot has been in motion. Neo's been taking the red pill. They're going to fight with the machine. And they get undone by Joe Pantaleone's character. And he goes, no, I want to go back into The Matrix. I sabotage you guys. I want steak on the beach. I want all the things that make me feel alive that I can only get there. I don't want to fight this war. It's too much struggle for what I already had and loved. If that's what you want, okay, you go ahead and do that. I have to make it my mission to not just be the best me for me personally, but for the kids who look up to me for the people, the adults who look up to me and say, because that guy did what he did, I have faith, I have the credible evidence in front of me that I can do it. I want to make that the majority of our country. I want the 80% of people in this country to look around at our landscape and say, this isn't enough, this isn't right. And if the world order is going to change, and if the Amer- and if the United States isn't going to be the top superpower, then we have to be able to say, despite all of that, I can still have what I want and we can still have what we collectively need. Big business, big media, big government. These are manifestations of our worst traits. Pride, greed, wrath, sloth, gluttony, envy. The world as we know it is coming to an end. And based on how this information hits you today, based on the plan you set in motion for yourself, based on what actions you take after this and how your community benefits from you and how other communities will benefit from what you all set in motion, that's going to have a lot to do with how the history books are written. And when I go to bed at night and when I wake up every morning, I want to be confident I gave it everything I could. Are you going to be able to say that? Or will you look back in remorse and say, this wasn't the history books I wanted my kids to read?